weeks, we're kind of kicking off, in a sense, the prophetic uh, section of the book, and we're going to look this morning at visions of the resurrected Jesus, visions of the resurrected Jesus. If you turn to Daniel chapter 7, we'll read a, a portion of this, this chapter, and then we will pray, and we'll begin to explain what we should be looking for this morning, what we should be looking for. There is a vision in Daniel chapter 7 of these of beasts, some fierce beast. But there's also this interlude in verse 9. As Daniel was contemplating what's happening in the vision, in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7, he says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, which is one of these elements of the vision, was speaking. It's a person. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations, the men of every language, might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we, we come to you this morning on this joyous celebratory, most important day of our calendar, commemorating and looking back to the most important days in all of human history. We thank you that we do, as the song says, serve a living Savior who's in the world today. And we know that you are living, Lord Jesus, no matter what men might say. Thank you, Father, for your word, which inspires and fills our hearts with with awe and with wonder and with an impulse to worship and to extol the greatness of who you are. We pray this morning, Father, we might capture a bit of that as we look into your word. We pray in it, Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, welcome to Resurrection Sunday. This Sunday, Easter Sunday, is a commemoration of the most important day in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Good Friday, the day that we remember Jesus' crucifixion, is the most solemn and sacred day in history, then Resurrection Sunday should be the most celebratory. But I find that some denominations, even some evangelical ones, are stuck on Friday. They don't seem to make it to Sunday. That is, you see a lot about the cross and, you know, the symbolism of the cross. I grew up in a church where there's probably... Uh, Old Baptist hymn book. There were probably 40 songs about the cross and maybe only a handful about the resurrection. I'm not sure how that worked in people's uh, minds and hearts to write so much about the cross. And don't get me wrong, the cross is a wonderful symbol of Jesus' sacrifice. But ladies, let me ask you this. When was the last time you came across a piece of jewelry that depicted the empty tomb and the rolled away stone? There are some. 
There's this thing called Etsy. Men, you don't know about this problem, but the, uh, but the women do. I said a problem. I'm sorry. It's not, I guess it's not a problem. You can actually find some jewelry that has an empty tomb and a rolled away stone. But traditionally, that's not what we tend to wear, is it? My point is, the cross was necessary to pay for our sins. But without the resurrection, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are still in our sins. We would be miserable. We talked a little bit in the huddle before the service. Uh, little, little faux pas in words. Is, is Jesus risen? Uh, not rhetorically. Uh, if, he, if he's not, why are we here? Why are we here? Thank God he is. He was raised in power and might. And we are not still in our sins. The resurrection allows the full work of salvation to come to us, to fully justify us, to declare us righteous, to put us in the standing before God that we can stand and not flee away because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the stamp of the Father upon the finished work of Christ saying, yes, it really is finished, and it is sufficient. If the cross was necessary, the resurrection was indispensable. This morning, instead of looking back at the historical event of the resurrection, and we've probably all done that, many an Easter Sunday, what I'd like to do is look at who the resurrected Jesus is right now, today, and how he will continue to be the preeminent person of history yet into the future. To do that, we will look at the prophetic visions of the resurrected Jesus as seen by the prophet Daniel and also the apostle John. The first vision is not coincidentally in Daniel chapter 7. We read it this morning. We'll read some more. In Daniel's vision... He sees two events that were future to him, but one that has already been fulfilled before our time and one that is still yet to come. We looked in verses 13 and 14, and we see this vision of the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man coming, till he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And this is kind of the idea of what happened in the ascension. This vision for Daniel, you'll see later in the chapter, is this was a very vexing experience for him to have this vision because alike with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the image which portrayed and looked forward to four Gentile nations that would come in succession and dominate the world's uh, scene politically and in power, there wasn't a lot said for Daniel's sake or for Israel's sake about where Israel fit in all that. Matter of fact, they became diminished as these Gentile nations would come onto the scene. This vision of these beasts is kind of a, 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 an expansion or a restatement of that vision. And it's, it's very disturbing to Daniel. At the end, of, at the end of the chapter, if you look, it says that his thoughts were greatly alarming and his face grew pale. This was a heavy thing. But this vision, this little interlude in the middle of the chapter about the Ancient of Days and this picture of something yet to come that's outside of, in some ways, the realm of history, was meant to be Daniel and the people of Israel's hope. It was meant to be their hope. 
It was meant to be a forward look to something that would give them a reason to believe that God would keep his promises and keep the covenants that we looked at in our study of Daniel. What we find in, in the, this first verse 13 is the heavenly exaltation and enthronement of Jesus. The heavenly exaltation and enthronement of Jesus. This has already happened. This is what happened when Jesus rose and he, he met uh, Mary at the tomb and he says, uh, you know, I have to ascend to my father. He had not yet ascended, and the ascension was where we find what's happening in this, where he's presented before the Ancient of Days, and we also find it in Philippians chapter 2, if you would turn over there, very familiar passage, but it kind of indicates to us something about the status and the place of Jesus right now. We, We, of course, know that Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus offering himself up, of emptying himself of his, his divine powers, the, ex- the autonomous use of those, and put them under the Father. And how he took on the form of bondservant, was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's Hebrews chapter 12. We see again this tie together between Jesus' faithfulness in offering himself up. And we see now that there is also this cloud of witnesses, those saints that have joined along with Jesus in the heavenlies. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where Jesus presently is. The resurrected Jesus is there, governing alongside the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Father. He's anticipating the second part of this vision, In verse 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Has that happened yet? Not on this earth, it has not. Not on this earth. As we read in Daniel 7, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions of my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning, and he told me, made known the interpretation of these things. And he explains about the various beasts, and there is this horn that utters great boasts, verse 20, which was larger in appearance than associates. And I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. 
I don't know about you. Do you think we're dominating? Do you think we're ruling right now? No, this world is, is on a grease slide to destruction. And notice in verse 25, this one, this, this horn that raises up, people speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. And the court will sit in judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. This vision was meant to instill hope that God will, there will be one that sits on a throne in Jerusalem. There will be a possession of the land for Israel. There will be peace on this earth because the Prince of Peace will come to rule and to reign. In these verses, we see the earthly dominion and delegation to the saints. This has not yet happened. We have authority on the basis of the gospel, but we're not ruling and reigning. We are not setting all the injustices of the world right. We are not having the ability to have the law of righteousness instilled in every government, in every state house. God wish it were so, right? No, this is still the one who has usurped and who has become a squatter on our rights to this earth. Satan, who tricked and fooled our forefather, Adam. But there is a time when the second Adam will come, and he will share out this rule and this reign to his saints. The second vision we want to look at is in Revelation chapter 1 to 3. Obviously, don't be scared. We're not going through all of it. But we do want to see this vision of who this resurrected Jesus looks like in Revelation chapter 1. John sees a vision, verse 4. There are seven churches in Asia. He's, he's writing to them. He has a word to them from their Lord, the Lord Jesus. He says, grace and peace to you. Verse 4, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. John has this vision that happens on the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday. And he's told to write to these churches. In verse 12, he turns and he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." 
And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That is a powerful Lord Jesus. That's who he is today. That's who we worship. Yes, he's a man. He still is a man. But he's a man glorified. And with great power. And with dominion. And he's just waiting to come back. We see in these chapters that Jesus is the judge. That's the picture of his eyes having a flame of fire. That he sees and he pierces and he knows all. We see he's also the discipliner and the rewarder of the church. That's who Jesus is now as he walks among the lampstands. In this, in this imagery, these lampstands represent these seven churches that receive this message. And we can look back historically and know that these churches existed. They were planted in the first century. And they all came about to faith as anyone does. By believing in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we were to read and take the time in chapters 2 and 3, we see that these churches had problems. You know why? Because they had sinful human beings in them. They were tripped up by false teaching. They were tripped up by sensuality. They were tripped up by fear. Some of them, like the church of Philadelphia, we find nothing negative said about them. They were an exemplary church. But the other ones... We see that again and again, Jesus has to say the word to his people, repent. There's things that are not right, and he's giving the church and the church his opportunity to make it right. He's the discipliner and the rewarder of the church. Eight times the word repent is stated in these chapters. But we also see that there's rewards for overcomers. That as Jesus walks about and looks among the churches, and as I believe he still does today, he's making a judgment about Oak Ridge Community Church. Do we love each other? Do we live at peace? Are we excited about the opportunity to take his commission to the ends of the earth? Are we living holy lives? Are we tainted by the world? Do we keep short accounts and do we confess our sins so that we can be a good place? Do we encourage and build up one another and spur along one another to love and good deeds? These are all the things that God's calling us collectively to, even as he individually looks at each one of us. And one day, we will stand before him, and we will have the opportunity to be judged as an overcomer and be rewarded as such, to be the one that he says and he calls up, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what he's doing. He's keeping the records. And one day there will be a judgment of our works. There won't be a condemnation judgment. There will be a judgment of our works. What do we do with the finite amount of time that we were left on this earth to accomplish and to sow temporal things so that we could reap eternal things? Things like our time and our money and our possessions and our opportunities. Jesus is looking for those of us to become overcomers, those who work out their faith 
even under harsh conditions and oppositions. And we won't turn to it, but that's the whole story of Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not the faith to believe in him for salvation, but the faith to continue to believe in him as we face trials. Like the people in that hall of faith in chapter 11. It's impossible to please God, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a, what? Rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God's given all of us a certain stewardship. He's given all of us a certain stewardship of tests and trials. And he's calling us to faithfulness. He's calling us to set our eyes on him, to learn from him how he faced his trials, how he moved forward, how he was rewarded and exalted by the Father. The third vision we look at is in Revelation chapter 5. It kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. And we'll see in these verses of Revelation chapter 5, this vision of the one who is worthy to open the title deed to the universe. These are things yet future. They were a vision that John saw, but he saw something that's yet to come. It's that place where whether you believe or understand this in your study of scriptures or not, or not, that Jesus' ruling and reigning authority is not going to be limited to the heavens. I believe one day he's going to set his feet on this earth and he's going to make things right. And this vision is kind of a picture of that. It kind of has some imagery here that I, I want to help you understand. It says that in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A book written inside and on the back was sealed up with seven seals. This is really like a scroll. And a special legal document would have been bound up and it would have had a wax seal put on it. In this particular case, there are seven seals we'll find. And it's written on the inside and out, meaning there's a title on the outside and then there's the details on the inside. And the picture, I believe, is that this is a picture of the title deed to the universe. You see, back when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them vice regents and rulers to rule over and subdue all that he had put under their charge. But Satan duped our forefather, Adam, and his wife, Eve, and Satan basically usurped our birthright. And that's why he's called the ruler of this world now. He took it away from us. It was rightfully ours. That's why Romans says there had to be a second Adam who could pass the test, who could be worthy as a human ruler to take control of this earth again, to take it back from the usurper, Satan. And so the picture here is there is this title deed to the earth, to the universe, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
going back to Daniel chapter 7. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase of God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is a process. As you follow the prophecy, you see that these seals are open one by one. It really plays out the rest of the book of Revelation, in a sense. And each of these seals, as it opens, become a judgment upon a wicked earth and its inhabitants. And the seventh seal is opened, and it becomes seven trumpet judgment. And the seventh trumpet judgment is laid out, and it becomes seven bowl judgments, which are like a great crescendo of judgment upon the wicked rulers of this earth, those that will not repent. In a sense, this process is to judge the wicked in his wrath. Turn over to Revelation chapter 15. We see this stated, this sign in heaven. I saw a sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And verse 7, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You see, this is part of God's character. God might be forbearing, God might be patient, but there is a time where God's patience comes to an end and he will judge all wickedness and ungodliness and unholiness. He has to, it's in his nature. He can't allow it to go forever. And at this point in history yet future, he will pour out wrath. Wrath is God in his anger judging sin and sinners. In a sense, he's beginning to put things right. All the injustices, all the corruption, all the powerful people who abuse and diminish other people made in God's image. The second thing we see, even in the midst of this, we see the mercy of God, chapter, chapter 12, if you turn back, where God rescues a remnant. God rescues a remnant. In Revelation chapter, in chapter 14, that in the midst of all this judgment, God sets aside 144,000 witnesses. He seals people to yet tell of his mercy and his grace. And they're sent out and they're protected. They cannot be harmed or killed. And they go throughout the earth in this period called the tribulation. They share the word of God out to the inhabitants of the earth. They give God gives the world one last chance to believe. And as a result, some do believe, especially among the people of Israel, where they will begin to turn back to their Messiah as they understand the gospel. And in, in, in the imagery here in chapter 12, what we have is there are people that even as the Antichrist, that little horn of Daniel, as he turns in his anger and his hatred to the people who believed in Jesus as the true Christ and who won't worship him. It says there is a place where they're nourished, verse 6, in the wilderness for 1,262 days. And the dragon was thrown down, verse 9, and as he comes to earth, that is, Satan himself, and he powers this, this world leader. 
it says that they will go out and there will be a passageway made where they will be protected for the last half of those days. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman, which is, represents people of Israel that have believed, so that he might cause her to be swept away to the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged, but the woman went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There are other people that, that will die martyrs' deaths, a great number of them, but God will rescue a remnant. In chapter 19, there's another part of this process, and that is Jesus will return with his holy ones, Revelation chapter 19, to rule and reign for a thousand years. To rule and reign for a thousand years. Look at... <clears throat> Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open. Again, another vision of the resurrected Jesus. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of his fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, chapter 20, verse 1, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him in the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him. So that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short while. This is a powerful ruler. This is our Lord Jesus. This is him taking back what is rightfully his and cleansing this earth so that he might rule and reign with those who he's made a kingdom of priests. That leads us to letter D, ultimately to cleanse this earth. And we've looked at it that he's, he's clearing away the wicked. The beast, the false prophet, the antichrist, Satan himself, he binds and takes him out of the picture. And then the rule that comes into this world, the earth will burst forth in abundance. That's where we see the lion lays down with the lamb. Children play with asps like pets. The earth is bountiful and, and flourishes and is abundant in its yield. There's no crime. There's very little death. There's some. Very little death. People are going to live 
long lifespans, and we will rule and reign with subordinate positions over this earth. This is in preparation to a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation chapter 21. After these things, Satan's loose, there's a short rebellion, Jesus wipes it out, the earth is set aside, and a new heaven and a new earth take its place, Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the ones who thirst from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The wonderful thing about all these visions is that, first of all, they're all true. They may expand our minds and our imaginations in a great way to try to understand and to grasp the reality because they are things yet to come. But the wonderful thing about these visions is they give us hope. They tell us that no matter what is going on in this world, we have reason to rejoice, especially on this day of days. Resurrection Day. Because wrapped up in the resurrection is the power that Ephesians says, the same power that brought Jesus up out of the grave is now distributed to us as his followers. You know, we often say, you know, it used to be a phrase, I'm baiting myself here, it used to be a phrase, the devil made me do it. I know, some of you laughed, you're over 50. The devil made me do it. It's a lie. It's a lie. As believers, We sin because we choose to. We have the power not to sin because of the power of the resurrection. The wonderful thing also about these visions, some of them heavy, even as Daniel saw. These are heavy things. We talk about the world being judged, wickedness, even wicked people being slaughtered because they're not willing to repent. The righteous, those who believe in that period of judgment who are are delivered over to martyr's death, slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands and maybe millions. Terrible, terrible things. In the midst of all that, as you read through the book of Revelation, these visions are punctuated with worship, giving glory to the God who is right to rule as he decides to rule. Chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, And because of your will, they existed and were created. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Chapter 5, verse 12. And sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Chapter 5, verse 13. 
and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. We get to be part of that choir one day to enter into that kind of worship that extols Jesus as he really is today. We need our imaginations stirred to be able to see that vision. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to take communion this morning. And we're going to take communion with a, a little bit of a twist. We always talk about doing it in remembrance of Christ as we look back on that upper room experience. I'm going to ask us with our imagination to kind of take communion with a forward look this morning. To think about the fact that there is a communion service, actually a feast, yet to come, that we're going to get to participate in. And it's going to be filled with worship and wonder and fellowship and reunion. And so even as we remember back to the death and the resurrection as historical events of the past, look forward to what's yet to come.